This is Soda. She's up here to look both cute, and she's going to be reading scripture. <laughs> and she's going to be reading scripture for us in just a minute. Hold on, Soda. I'm going to give an introduction before you. Yes, we've heard it, Nicole. So let me tee up what we're going to be reading because Soda's going to be reading a. This is like a bizarre passage of Scripture. This is one of those passages of Scripture that if you go to and read some morning, in your, if you have a little devotional time, which I strongly encourage, by the way, and you spend that time reading the Bible, if you go to this passage, it will ruin the rest of your day. This is the most desperate passage in the Bible. And not only so, but it's a little bit schizophrenic. It starts really dark, really dark. And then it turns to, but God is great. Sing praise to the Lord. And you think, awesome. You know, Jeremiah is coming out of it. And then it turns darker still. And at the end, it's the most desperate passage that you read anywhere in the entire scriptures. Several years ago, we did a series of messages where we talked about one of Gateway's most important values. And I want to talk about it again today before we invite the public to come visit us. If you're visiting today, thanks for coming. I don't know how you found us, but thank you. But before we do our big grand opening and begin to invite the public for real, I want to lay this priority again for us. And this is not wet cement. This is dry cement. This is concrete. It's been a critical value for Gateway from day one. I believe it's always a value for God's people, but we've tried to make it especially a value for Gateway. And the value is authenticity, just being real. We are people who get real and stay real. This is why this past spring, for instance, six or seven times and early into the summer, I guess beginning last fall, I would have someone come sit up on stage with me and tell their story. Not a three-minute version, but a 20-minute version. We just talk through the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we're going to continue to do that this fall because we believe in being real. We believe when we're real. That creates space for God to do his thing. So we did this series years ago, getting back to this, we did this series years ago, and someone created this for me. The kind of the point of the series was being real and being authentic. So I brought this guy out, he's wearing a robe, and this is what some of us think of when we think of holy and spiritual, but I said repeatedly, every Sunday we brought him out, and I said repeatedly, you know, the real guy is much fleshier and messier I mean, devastatingly handsome, I agree, but doesn't clean up the way this guy does. Doesn't always, it's not always that happy. Repeatedly, week after week after week, we were trying to lay the foundation for this value. All right, if you grew up in church, you may know the name. I'm getting there, Soda. You may know the name William Cowper, but probably not. But you know his poetry. He wrote many, many hymns that we sing. One of the hymns that William Cowper wrote is, There is a fountain filled with blood Drawn from Emmanuel's veins And sinners plunged beneath that flood Lose all their guilty stains And then the chorus, anybody remember it? Lose all their guilt. You're supposed to sing. It's easy. Join me. Lose all their guilty stains. Good church people. Lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunged. And sinners plunged beneath that flood. Lose all their guilty stains. However, Cowper was tormented by fears that he had committed 
the unpardonable sin amidst rumors that he had had an illicit affair. Cowper eventually suffered a nervous breakdown. He attempted suicide several times and for a short period in his life was kept straitjacketed in an insane asylum. When I was younger, I might have thought there was something wrong with Cowper, spiritually. Without knowing it, I might have contributed to Cowper's withdrawal and his attitude. I might have been party to Cowper's inability to be real with his struggle in a place like this. I've known many people who feel they cannot bring their struggle to church. How incredible is that? For example, Barbara is a wonderful woman. She's an excellent mother and a valuable member of the community. She's a committed Christ follower in everyone's eyes but her own. Barbara suffers from depression. She describes her days as clouded by fog most of the time. Most days she cannot believe that God loves her. If he does, then why does she feel so bad? Sometimes she doubts there even is a God. Is there a place in the church for William Cowper? Is there a place in the church for Barbara? Is there a place in the church for this Ed, not this one? Most emphatically, there is. In fact, these people, Barbara and William Cowper and Jeremiah, are in good company. They're not necessarily in a good place, but they're in good company. When I was young, I conceived my spiritual life of the Christian life as a victorious process of moving from greater excitement to even greater excitement, and strength to greater strength, and faith to greater faith. Now I understand a little more of what William and Barbara experience, and I don't believe that makes my faith weaker. I believe, in fact, that my faith is more robust and more honest than it's ever been. One of my tutors in this process was the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. So today, we're going to look at a gut-wrenching passage of Scripture. Jeremiah chapter 20, we're going to begin with verse 7. We're going to ask Sutter to read for us, and let's go old school. Stand with us out of reverence for God's Word. O Lord, you deceived me, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I'm ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out, proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. But if I say, I will not mention him or speak anymore in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. I hear many whispering, terror on every side. Report him. Let's report him. All my friends are waiting for me to slip, saying, perhaps he will be deceived. Then we will prevail over him and take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me like a mighty warrior, so my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. They will fail and be thoroughly disgraced. Their honor will never be forgotten. O Lord Almighty, you who examine the righteous and probe the heart and mind, let me see your vengeance upon them. For to you I have committed my cause. Sing to the Lord, give praise to the Lord. He rescues the life of the needy from the hands of the wicked. Cursed be the day I was born. May the day my mother bore me not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought my father the news, who made him very glad, saying, A child is born to you, a son. May that man be like the towns the Lord overthrew without pity. May he hear wailing in the morning, a battle cry at noon. For he did not kill me in the womb with my mother as my grave. Her womb enlarged forever. Why did I ever come out of the womb? To see trouble and sorrow and to end my days in shame? Thank you, Sarah. 
Father, we pray that we would hear you today. Lord, not that you need it, but we give you permission today to break our heart with the things that break yours. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, look at verse 7. The word translated deceived is also used in Exodus 22, 16 in a law, check this out, that talks about sexual seduction. So verse 7 here could be translated, you seduced me, Lord, and I was seduced. That's how it's translated two other times in the Old Testament. Parentheses, how could I not be seduced? You're God. Of course I would believe your lines. Jeremiah seems to be saying that he had understood his relationship to God to be something like a marriage. But now it's clear to him that God had seduced him, used him, and tossed him aside. Here's what happened. Here's the story. Early in his life, God had given Jeremiah the task of announcing to the people of Israel that the nation would be overrun by their enemies. God's blessing of them had come to an end. Unless they experienced dramatic repentance and changed their hearts and habits, immediately the country would be obliterated. Now, this was a wildly unpopular message for obvious reasons. Plus, Jeremiah was the only court advisor, the lone voice who was offering this picture. You can imagine the kind of press he received in the Jerusalem Post. He was ridiculed and ostracized constantly. This was the case throughout most of his adult life until eventually he was imprisoned and tortured. And to add insult to injury, he delivered this message for years while nothing happened. There was no calamity, there was no change in the culture, and all the while the public mocked him. Clearly, God, something along the lines in our relationship went sour. I did exactly what you asked me to do, and what has it gotten me? Utter ridicule and rejection, plus I look like an idiot. So let's step back for a minute and think about Jeremiah's attitude in chapter 20, this passage. We have to ask ourselves, how does this happen? God's people aren't supposed to feel this way, are they? How does God's prophet end up in this kind of place spiritually? Not only do I wish I was dead, I wish the guy that announced my birth was dead. Jeremiah wants to die. He believes God has seduced him. How did he get here? I mean, it seems like either Jeremiah was wrong in what he thought God wanted him to say and do, or he didn't love God and he didn't really want to obey him. Why else would he feel all this venom? How does he end up wishing he'd never been born and believing that God has seduced and abused him? I think the answer is simple. I don't think Jeremiah missed God's message, and I don't think he hated God. I think he was just like many of us. Here's the answer. When finite people relate to an infinite God, it is inevitable that we get some things wrong. This is why the prophet Isaiah says at one point, hey, the thoughts of God are higher than our thoughts. His ways are not like our ways. In other words, God is not like us. Let me offer up an explanation. This is at least a partial explanation at how finite people get sideways with God. Sometimes we get things wrong because we miss what God wants. That's just a fact. But I think more often, 
We get sideways because we respond badly to the outcome of doing what God wants. I'm going to say that again. I think more often we respond badly to what happens when we do what God wants, and I think this is what happened to Jeremiah. We get this notion in our heads that if we do what's right, everything is supposed to work out well for us, and and we're supposed to get what we want. Our children are supposed to be okay. Our health is supposed to run a natural, very long life course. Our relational universe is supposed to be fairly stable. People are not supposed to hate us if we do what's right. But this isn't the deal that God makes with us. In the long run, we will all get what we need, and we will get what we were perfectly designed for if we do what God wants. In the long run, we will become our best selves if we do what God wants. But in the short run, very often we will not get what we want. In the short run, very often other people will treat us unfairly, and life will serve us some serious challenges all the while we're doing what's right. So how does Jeremiah handle this realization? This is important. Believe it or not, this dark passage provides a model for us, not of how you should feel, but of how to respond. Here he is doing what God wants, and very bad stuff is happening to him. What does he do? He gets very, very upset, and he gets very, very honest. He is painfully, bruisingly, shockingly honest. He's real. And I believe he's a model for us. Again, not in how he feels, but how he responds with how he feels. So let's look to verse 8. I'm going to read it. Verse 8, he says, Whenever I'm talking, all I'm doing is crying out violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. Jeremiah is saying, I've been preaching and counseling my whole life that destruction is coming. I'm always the guy with the bad news, and it doesn't come. My critics say I'm a fool, and honestly, I look like one. I've tried to be faithful, and look what it gets me. Right? And again, some of us have felt that our faithfulness has produced something different than we expected. We have a failed or failing marriage. Our career is less than we expected. Our influence is less than we dreamed about. We don't live where we want to live. And some of us are upset. Here's the kicker. Some of us may have thought that we couldn't really be upset with God. We may have never allowed ourselves that emotional response. We may have even been taught that faithful people never really get upset with God. But this is not true. This is not real. This is what flathead does. This is not what this Ed does. And this is not a healthy model for you and I. In fact, to treat our disappointment as if it is shameful is not faithfulness, it's denial. When you get upset because life is dramatically other than what you expected, you're not in a good place. But you're in good company. And you have to deal with it honestly. And we have to deal with it here. If we cannot... We're empty and useless. It's simply not helpful to think of being upset as good or bad. It's just inevitable because finite people inevitably mess things up. 
We end up growing desperate or anxious or depressed or angry, and sometimes we feel these things more deeply than we have a right to feel them, and sometimes we feel this way toward God. Again, I'm not saying that these feelings are good. Of course, this is not a good way to feel, but it is inevitable. So here's the critical lesson we learned from Jeremiah. If you miss everything else, don't miss this. If you're new to Gateway, you're going to hear that phrase again. If you miss everything else, don't miss this. Faithfulness is not expressed by denying our disappointment, but by persevering through it. The goal is not to stay in the place that Jeremiah is in, nor is the goal to act like we're somewhere that we're not. The goal is to move through this place and to maintain our relationship with others and with God. The goal is to persevere. You see, Jeremiah has had it. He wants to give up his ministry. He sounds very much like he's contemplating suicide. He wants to quit, but he doesn't. In fact, he realizes he can't. Verse 9, But if I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, His word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. Here's what we learn from Jeremiah in this verse. A genuine encounter with God cannot be denied. It must be expressed. I'm going to say that again. A genuine encounter with God cannot be denied. It must be expressed. If you were here last week, We did some baptisms, and we had some people up here telling their story. You may remember, if you were here, Brian Monahan's testimony. Brian said that he and Jamie had spent years away from church and away from pursuing a connection with God. And then God drew him back. He felt that tug. You heard Matthew's testimony. Matthew said, I tried to be an atheist, and it didn't work so well. A genuine encounter cannot be denied. Eventually, it must be expressed, God will hound you, and he's bigger than you are. I like the way Philip Yancey expressed this. Listen to this. Yancey said, transformation, change in our lives, transformation comes in the end not by an act of will, but by an act of grace. The opposite is equally true of this principle. When faith can be denied over the long term, when it is meaningless to the way we live our lives, then it is meaningless. It is not genuine. Because a genuine encounter with God cannot be denied. That kind of faith is not the result of a genuine encounter with God. You may have known many people who have had passing encounters with religion. I may be talking to someone here this morning who has felt Serious sentimentality at certain points in your life. You've been in a religious setting and you thought, oh. But that's not necessarily a genuine encounter with God. If you want the real article, it is as simple as asking. In brokenness and realness, not like Flathead, but like the real one. I'm a little bit desperate here. Help me, God. And that's a prayer he loves to hear. These folks may have felt sentimentality. They may have felt a desire to be part of something. That kind of faith can be easily discarded. But a genuine encounter with God cannot. Okay, let's skip down to verses 11 through 13. 
This is when he starts to turn north again. Things sound good. It feels like we're okay. Jeremiah's out of the mess. But the Lord is with me like a mighty warrior, so my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. They will fail and be thoroughly discouraged. Their dishonor will never be forgotten. O Lord Almighty, you who examine the righteous, probe the heart and mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for I've committed to you my cause. Sing to the Lord. Give, Give praise to the Lord! Exclamation point. He rescues the life of the needy from the hands of the wicked. Yay! If you have emotional whiplash, you're not the first. Many scholars over the years have wondered how the Jeremiah who wrote verses 7 through 9 could write these verses. Sing to the Lord, give praise to the Lord. What are you talking about, Jeremiah? You were just claiming he had seduced you. You wish you'd never been born. Your whiplash is about to get worse if you keep reading, right? Sing to the Lord, give praise to the Lord. Now verse 14, curse be the day I was born. May the day my mother bore me not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought my father the news, who made him glad, saying, A child is born to you, a son. May that man be like the towns the Lord overthrew without pity. May he hear wailing in the morning a battle cry at noon, for he didn't kill me in the womb. This represents deeper desperation than we encounter anywhere else in the Bible. Over the years, various scholars have suggested this is a mistake. Depending on who you read, some will suggest that verses 11 through 13 don't belong in this passage. This is Jeremiah at his darkest and worst. Others suggest that verses 14 and following that I just read don't belong, that Jeremiah wanted to end this passage on a positive note. I'm certain that the whole passage does belong, and it belongs together. This passage may not have been composed all in one setting on the same day. But this was all part of the same period in Jeremiah's ministry, and he put these passages together intentionally. How? Why? What kind of spirituality produces this schizophrenic expression? What kind of faith is this? And I would say the answer is authentic faith. This is the real article. This is what real faith looks like. This is not the faith of flat ed. Flat ed faith has no room for William Cowper or Barbara, to be sure. And it has no room for Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 20. But when finite people engage in genuine encounters with God, it sometimes looks like this. Very raw and very real. There are a couple of important takeaways for us in this, and we need to end with this. First of all, This is a reminder to all of us about our own faith, our own encounter with God. Faith is not a neat and tidy ride, and it's not a straight line. It's messy, it's hard, and it's often jerky. And we are not the kind of people who deny that. We are not the kind of people who always smile and pretend. We stand with Jeremiah, we get real. But we are also not the kind of people who quit. And if you're thinking that this morning, if you're thinking of quitting this morning, I want you to remember, that's not what you're like. You're not the kind of person who quits. You're the kind of person who perseveres. Life is sometimes a mess, and we are authentic about that, but we persevere. Secondly, this is a reminder to us about the faith journey of others. Not just about ourselves, but of others. 
Faith is not a neat and tidy ride, and it's not a straight line. It's messy, it's hard, and it's often jerky. That means this, this, right here, 42350 Tall Cedars Parkway and every square inch of it, and this room, and the rooms out there, and the parking lot. This is a place for people who are a mess. This is a place for Jeremiah from chapter 20. Look, later in Jeremiah's life, he had his act more fully together. You see, the book Jeremiah is in the Bible because he ended up being right. He stood against the entire culture, and the entire culture ended up being wrong. By the end of his life, he saw a significant part of God's purposes work themselves out. He was fully vindicated, even though he didn't want to be. The nation of Israel was obliterated. And that Jeremiah, the Jeremiah at the end of his life, the more fulfilled, vindicated Jeremiah, the one whose reputation was absolutely sterling, that Jeremiah would be welcome everywhere. But we welcome Jeremiah from chapter 20. We have to. First of all, because we are sometimes like him. And secondly, because we don't get Jeremiah at the end of his life without going through Jeremiah in chapter 20. This is a place for Jeremiah chapter 20. This is a place for people who question their faith. This is a place for people who question their sexuality. This is a place for people who doubt everything. This is a place for people who disagree with you and me. This is a place for people who do not have it all together. I didn't come for the people who have it all together, Jesus said. I came for the sick. So this is a place for sickos. All sickos are welcome. And many are here today. By the way, all of us are sick. It's just that some of us don't admit it. This is a place for those who admit it. In this place, we get real. We have to remember that. It's not our job to look good. So how do we practice authenticity? How do we protect it as part of our culture here at Gateway? So I'm going to offer four quick suggestions. These will be takeaways for us. You know, I wondered how we wrap this up. And I thought maybe at the end of today we would stand, move our chairs into circles, and everybody confess your darkest sin. You're laughing. And I thought that might not go over well. And if we do it, I'm certainly staying up here and directing. But instead, I'm just going to give us some reminders today. I'm just going to give us some walking papers. Uh, give us a couple of things uh, to take away. Four things that I think will help us protect and practice authenticity here at Gateway. And we have to remember these, I think, individually. We don't remember these as a whole congregation. These are for each of us individually. Number one, I think we encourage ourselves, we steal ourselves, we exhort ourselves, and we exhort one another, linger over life's tough questions. Don't run too easily to quick answers, both in your own thinking and when you're giving advice to others. Don't run too quickly to quick, easy answers, because many times there aren't easy answers. You know, I thought about this recently. A couple of weeks ago, I did a funeral for Jeannie Hardman's mom. It ended up being a powerful time for me, and what I realized as I was thinking about that, praying for the Wolf family and for Jeannie and Tim, I realized you know, funerals present kind of a unique opportunity for those of us who are in my business because they are unavoidable. 
You go to a funeral, and pretty much everybody knows why we're there, and we can't avoid it. And you know what else we all realize at a funeral? That's coming for us. You know that some way conceptually if you're 29. You, I mean, you know that. But it rattles in your bones differently the older you get. That is coming for us. You know, honestly, it's a, it sounds a little morbid, but we don't do ourselves any favor by not recognizing that periodically. Linger over life's tough questions, not just death, but there are a lot of tough questions that confront you and I. If knowing answers to life's questions, I love this quote from Madame Guyon, if knowing answers to life's questions is absolutely necessary to you, then forget the journey. You will never make it, for this is a journey of unknowables, of unanswered questions, enigmas, incomprehensibles, and most of all things unfair. It's amazing how often Jesus challenged his listeners' assumptions. He forced people to question themselves and their assumptions. He, he forced them to linger over the tougher things. Andrew Greeley said this, I like this. If one wishes to eliminate uncertainty, tension, confusion, and disorder from one's life, there is no point in getting mixed up with Jesus of Nazareth. Second, press into your emotional pain. Press into your emotional pain. That is the exact opposite response that you and I train ourselves in. So this one we have to learn. Press into your emotional pain. I saw this over here last week. So I can't remember who it was, but somebody brought one. But I have this, I don't know if you've seen these, but I have this, looks like a shepherd's stick, but this crooked green rod that curves at the top, and it's got a little ball on either end. And I use it to rub my back, and it's awesome. It's also got some things that stick out of it. I can rub all sorts of places because I have this spot in my back here that's a perennial problem for me. And it will get, there's a little knot back there, and I can, oh, I can feel it. So I put that little green knob on it, and I press down, and it hurts awful and good. And I, I just make it stay there, rub it back and forth, and, and I hate it. And I have to take a breath because it hurts so bad. And then I'll rub it some more. I linger over the pain, and you know what happens. It gets loose, and I feel better. When hurt happens, don't be afraid to ask, Lord, why does this hurt me so much? Why do I respond this way? Show me what's in me. Linger over pain. Third, listen to your critics. They're never always right and also never always wrong. So if we're going to stay soft to the things that break God's heart, if we're going to be real with one another, we've got to listen to our critics. Winston Churchill said this, criticism may not be agreeable, but it is necessary. It fulfills the same function as pain in the human body. It calls attention to an unhealthy state. Finally, if we're going to be authentic, if we're going to be real here at Gateway, and if we're going to protect that, we've got to express what's real to God's people. We've got to express that here. So I want to tell you what my dream is. Really, my dream, my prayer for Gateway, as I, as I linger over us, and as I think about what Gateway is going to look like a year from now, I imagine we've had an awesome time, and I've been out on my stage extension, and the fire marshal doesn't care. And uh, we've worked out all the tweaks and the sound system and the gymnasium, the multi-purpose room temperature does not say zero. And I've wrapped up a, a great sermon, and you all have just been blown away and incredibly inspired. 
And so we finish, and I say some prayer in Jesus' name, amen, and Nate and Jordan come up, and, you know, Nate's playing, and we're worshiping, and then, ah, go in peace. And we dissolve into 10 or 15 circles where people are praying for one another, where God's work is being done by God's people. Real is happening. That's my vision. Remember, Jeremiah wrote this book for the public. He wrote this stuff down and passed it out. He wrote, compiled, edited, and eventually shared this stuff. James 5.16, one of Jesus' first followers, made this even clearer. He said this, you got to confess your sins to one another. you got to talk about the mess and then pray for each other so that you may be healed. It's as if James is saying, you don't get to healing unless you go through being public about the mess. He adds this, the prayer of a righteous person, that's powerful and effective. So get yourself prayed for. We have to talk about our mess. Well, what if someone thinks badly of me? Well, who cares? <laughs> they kind of know anyway. You carry it on your face and in your countenance and in your posture. And I can guarantee you, you deposit your mess to someone who's real, they'll think better of you. We need God's people to hear our mess and we need for them to pray for us so that we can get beyond it, so that we can persevere. So, at Gateway Community Church, after we did this series, I thought this was just a great, I, I promise you not because it was me, but I thought this was a great illustration. I was really proud of myself, and we pulled this off. Each Sunday, pull it out, and I, some dramatic moment in the service, and I point to Flathead. Not like that. Not that religious guy. I realize now I was probably saying like this religious guy, and that was the wrong thing to say, but after the series was over, this thing disappeared, and I didn't know what happened to it until it showed up in our church office, and mostly our young people people like Karina Salee, they started moving this thing around the building all over the place, and every time I walked into a room, it would scare me to death. So just be prepared. I may do that to some of you. This is not the goal. The goal is not to look good. The goal is to be real and persevere. And that's the kind of people we are, because Jesus is in us. And the Holy Spirit is empowering. So we can do this. Let me pray for us. And I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and see if they can get wired in. Loving Lord, we, honestly, we need you to be especially loving in our messes. I pray that you would protect our realness with one another and our realness with you. Make us people who have the courage and the tenacity to be real. And Lord, create a space here where people can come and be a mess, and that mess can be prayed for and absorbed by you, and where change can happen, transformation, not as an act of our will, but as an act of grace. Hear us, O Lord. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.
Okay, stand with me if you would. I realize Flat Ed is in Jerry's way. We're going to sing 10,000 Reasons. This is just the hymn that's picking a number. He could have said a million thousand reasons to bless the Lord. So let's sing a verse and a chorus of 10,000 Reasons and let's let him know. say before we sing this that in keeping with the authenticity and realness I talked to John Elliott after the set and I said how does it sound he said it's good it sounds pretty good but got to remember that this is not a performance that we're worshiping the Lord and so we have some fancy lights and cool stage we almost look like a real band now but that's never what it's been about or going to be about we want to facilitate worship and we want to take part in that too and if that's ever not the case and if it ever feels like we're performing then we're not doing it right and we up here on the stage have our own issues still the same band Nate is still gonna try to play Jimi Hendrix while we're trying to practice Eric's still gonna try to play too loud we even put him in his own room back there I have my own issues, but we don't have long enough to get into those. But uh, I will say that uh, the worst thing you can do for someone that struggles with pride is give them a literal spotlight. So uh, we need to get right with God, and, and you're going to hear this message a lot as we kind of build this culture into Gateway, this culture of worship. And so uh, you're going to hear this again, and we're going to continue to say it and repeat it, especially as new people come in. and. Uh, become part of our body, that we want to use this time to get right with God and confess sins and uh, praise the Lord who is doing a good work in us. So if we go to verse 3 on that day. And on that day when my strength is failing I'll worship. 